Peace be with you. Such a joy to see you this morning and to be able to stand before you and and proclaim the word of God. Uh, Let's pause and go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for this opportunity to to just be, uh, to have breath in our lungs to pour out to you. I thank you for the opportunity to be before these, your people. And I pray, Father God, that you would not allow us to take uh, this moment for granted, time where we can open up our word and hear your word preached. And I pray, Father God, that you would send fire to the, the heart that is frozen or cold. I pray that you will give energy to the person who is physically worn out. I pray, Father God, that you'll bring peace to the mind that is mentally exhausted and tired. Um, I pray for us as a church as we uh, uh, recover from a, a hard, horrible week. I pray, Father God, that you will continue to allow us to, uh, to grieve, uh, to weep, uh, but to do so as those who have hope. And I pray, Father God, that you'll give us strength even now. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. In the matchless, wonderful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 All right. So uh, as we think about just life in general, uh, most of life, we can find ourselves working and working and working, uh, really, in essence, to justify ourselves, to try to prove ourselves. Life uh, comes with, with pressure. As a parent, we want to be a great parent. So we constantly put our best foot forward as a friend. We want to be a great friend. Christmas is coming up, so we want to give a great gift. So we start seeing, how can I give a great gift so that in the eyes of the person that I'm giving a great gift, this gift to, I'm justified. I'm seen as good, as, as right, as a spouse. We want to put our best forward, foot forward as a spouse, as a, a single person. We want to put our best foot forward to serve the Lord in our singleness and to, and to make sure that he is is pleased. And even when we think about just uh, most of the way uh, America is, it's very competitive. You have to put your best forward. If you want to get a good job, you have to have a great resume. And on that resume, you've got to make sure you explain in detail everything good that you've ever done that can relate to this job if you want a chance. If the door is going to swing open, you have to, you have, to have a, a great representation there a great uh, resume put forward. And that can be, that can be exhausting. That can be, that can be tiresome. It is exhausting. It is tiresome. Justification by, by singleness, justification by parenting, justification by, by being a spouse for a preacher, justification by preaching, being right, doing something well, so that in the eyes of other people, you are validated. You are validated. And pretty much when you think about every religion in the world, uh, that's what it boils down to. Even uh, it, it boils down to a spiritual resume. It boils down to uh, you uh, being able to put your best foot forward in a way in which it would uh, appease God's, in a way in which God would be pleased. It's you praying. It's you uh, uh, going to uh, to church. It's you giving uh, gifts. It's it's you perhaps not cussing people out. Whatever it is, it's it's this list that we've made up and. And in most religions, this list is, is what makes you right. It's what justifies you. And honestly, for a lot of people, they're burnt out spiritually. It's just tiring. It's exhausting because in the back of our mind, we know that there's, there's really, it seems like there's really never, it's never enough. It's never enough. 
And that's the heart of the series that we're getting at, uh, the Sola series. We're looking at five theological statements and principles that were recovered uh, during the Protestant uh, uh, Reformation over 500 uh, years ago. As of October 31st, we uh, we celebrate this this Reformation where this German monk and scholar uh, uh, declared a theological treatise or uh, a challenge to the Roman Catholic Church to, and, 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 and in order to bring them back to the foundation and what he was convinced that scripture uh, wrote and what other great men and women were con- convinced the, the simplicity of the scriptures, uh, that salvation is by faith alone. Salvation is by grace alone. Salvation is in Christ alone. And that's what we're looking at today, how salvation is in Christ alone. Uh, that we, in essence, can't work our way uh, to being saved, to being right with God, but that we, uh, in essence, are given this gift of, of righteousness. And Martin Luther, he, he believed this. He believed that salvation was uh, by grace through faith and that it, and our faith was to be placed in Christ Jesus. And this is a doctrine that we call the exclusivity of Christ. Uh, We believe that salvation is found in Christ alone, the sufficiency of Christ, that Jesus alone is enough to save. It's not Jesus plus. It's not Jesus plus mass. It's not Jesus plus merit. It's not Jesus plus the uh, absolution of the Pope. It's not Jesus plus indulgences or purgatory. It's it's Jesus alone that saves. That's what we read throughout the scriptures, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 5 through 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Acts 4 and 12, the apostles proclaim salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. John chapter 14, verse 6 Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Reformation and the Reformers and those whom the Spirit was was leading, I mean, like Luther and Zwingli, they, they believed in this doctrine, the exclusivity of Christ. Luther wrote, for the one doctrine which I have supremely at heart is that of faith in Christ. From whom, through whom, unto whom, all my theological thinking flows back and forth day and night. And I pray as a church that that's where all of our our thinking will flow back and forth day and night to uh, this teaching and to this belief that salvation is not man-made. It rests in Christ and Christ alone. And so today I want to look at two things as we think about this doctrine of salvation being in Christ and Christ alone. First, I want to look at our our common state. And secondly, I want to look at our uncommon salvation. Quickly, our common state, our common state. When we look at verse uh, Romans chapter 3, we see in verse uh, 24, uh, 23, excuse me, that Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when we talk about salvation being in Christ and known, the first thing we want to know is that salvation in Christ, it is absolutely necessary. And that everyone, every human being has a, a shared state. And that state is that we are all sinners. 
We all fall short of the glory of God. Every single person sins and misses the mark. We, we lack uh, the, the moral fortitude to uh, ascend to God in a way that would allow us to have a relationship with him. And that's what Paul is getting here to in the book of Romans. He's kind of building this case. And up until chapter 3, it's been a kind of bleak case. Uh, verse 18 of chapter 1, the apostle Paul writes, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So God's wrath is against, I love it, the uh, emphatic way in which he writes, the godlessness and the wickedness of people, all of their wickedness. But it's not just some people, it's all people. That's what he says in chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge. The Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So he goes back uh, to, to the psalmist in order to make this case before uh, those who are Jews in Rome. And he says, no one is righteous. And in essence, he's getting to Jewish particularism. He's talking to the Jews and he said, hey, um, you are no better off than Gentiles. Uh, just because God chose you, and, and Moses teaches uh, in both Exodus and Deuteronomy that that the people, that Israel is God's chosen people, the Jews, but this is not of their own doing. It's not of their own work. It was God lavishing his grace upon them. Um, but he said, just because God chose you to be the vehicle in which he uses to bring salvation to the world, it does not mean that you're better than the Gentiles. The snubbery, this arrogance that you have towards the, the Gentiles is, is not what God de desires. In fact, that's what he says in verse 22. There is no difference between you Jews and Gentiles. There is no difference whatsoever. Why? Because all have sinned. All have fallen short. We all have this common state. And no matter how hard you work, Paul is saying, through circumcision, through keeping the law, your righteousness is not enough. And that's the good news that he introduces in verse 21. But now, this is good news, as he's been building his case about the sinfulness of, of humanity, about how all of humanity's throats are open graves, about how all of humanity's tongues practice deceit, about how all of us are, are totally depraved. Sin has impacted and affected all of us emotionally, physically, all of our life, rationally, all of our life is in, impacted by sin. But then he says, but now, here's the good news, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. He said that God's righteousness is made known apart from the law that he's given. And his law is constantly condemning us because we are constantly missing the mark of his law. But he says there is a righteousness that we can receive apart from the law. And what's that righteousness? That righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. And that's what we talked about last week. We talked about justification by faith and how God declares us right with him because of Jesus Christ. It is a, a legal declaration that God declares over us that you 
my child, as you place your faith in his son, Jesus Christ, you are right with me. There's no more beef. There's no more wrath between me and you. And not only are you forgiven, but you now receive this double imputation. You receive Christ's recordness, Christ's righteousness. Christ's record stands for us before the Father. There's a, a video that my kids like to watch called Stuck in a Yuck. A friend of mine's made it. He's a, a cartoonist. And uh, the video is a very, very good short kids video that he made in order to, uh, to teach children this truth that salvation is in Christ alone and is by, by God. God is the one who saves us. So it's this, this image of a, a boy who's playing and he gets stuck in some mud and it's called the yuck. And the mud is super sticky and he can't get himself out. He tries to get himself out. He tries to climb out with a stick. He's trying to pull on things, but he just can't free himself. No matter what he does, he is stuck in this yuck. And it's a funny little video because uh, then some of his friends try to come and help him out, but he pulls his friends in the yuck as well. And everybody is in the yuck. Everybody is in the mud uh, with this boy. And there's no one who can help, no one who can save. So the kids are looking at it like, oh, he's stuck in a luck. And now he's in a yuck too. Everybody's stuck in a yuck. Who's going to help him? Right? And then Jesus comes along and Jesus gets them out of the yuck. And that's the biblical message of salvation. The biblical message of salvation is that we're all stuck in a yuck. We are all messed up. And if you don't think you're messed up, you're more messed up. <laughs> like, you're that person. <laughs> we, we all fall short. And when we sin, we just don't sin against each other. We sin against a holy, perfect, and righteous God. A God whose standard is perfection. And our sin isn't just us hurting people's feelings or us doing bad deeds. Our sin is also our thoughts. It's our attitude. And there's no way that we can be made right with God in our own strength. We can't climb out of the yuck by trying harder. We can't climb out of the yuck by learning more. We can't climb out of the yuck by going to church, by, by doing a thousand Hail Marys. None of that makes us right with God. The only way that we get out of the yuck is if God himself comes down and saves us and pulls us out. And that's the biblical message of salvation. But the biblical message of salvation goes a little deeper. The biblical message of salvation says that we actually were in the yuck and we enjoy the yuck. And we don't want to be saved out of yuck. And God is the one who has to give us the heart and the desire to want to get out of the yuck. He gives that to us, and then he comes to get us out of the yuck. And this is salvation by grace alone, unmerited favor, through faith alone. And that faith that we have, that trust that we have, that, that desire that we have to be right with God, is a gift from God as well. And it's in Christ alone. It's not in Buddha. It's not in Confucius. It, it, it's not in, in your God of your ancestors. It's not in animalistic behavior. It's not in black mystical religions. It's in one person, and his name is Jesus. And that's what Paul goes on to show here. The rest of this text, he's going to show our uncommon salvation. And he does three words to show that first he points us to redemption. Then he points us uh, to the sacrifice of atonement. Uh, and, and then he's going to point us to this demonstration. So let's deal with 
Let's deal with redemption. Verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So when we think about salvation being in Christ alone, one of the reasons that we should should see that salvation should only come through Christ alone is because, because we have been redeemed by Christ. Been redeemed by Christ. The story is told of a young boy who builds this toy yacht out of wood. And he crafts and he makes this yacht out of wood, very gifted with his hands, and he loves this yacht. He takes it everywhere with him. He goes and he puts this yacht, little play yacht, in in a lake, and he's just playing with it. He's enjoying it. And one day, a, a big wind comes, and he still puts the yacht in it, and the wind takes his little yacht away. And he feels a profound sense of of lostness as this very thing that he has created has now gotten away from him and he can't get the yacht. No matter what he tries to do, he can't get it. So he goes uh, back home and he's really sad. A couple weeks later, he's walking and he walks past a store and looks through the window and lo and behold, it's it's a little yacht that looks just like his yacht. So he goes and he looks at it and he turns it over and he sees his initials and he says, my goodness, this is the yacht that I've made. And he goes to the owner. He says, listen, can I, can I have this yacht? This is mine. I made it with my own hands. This is my initials. And the owner says, no, you can't have it, but you can buy it. So the little boy goes back home, gets all his money together, breaks his pinky bank. He goes back to the store, goes back to the owner. He gives him the money. The owner gives him a yacht. And he marvels at this little yacht. He is just amazed that... The thing that he once lost, he now has back. And he, he looks at this yacht with, with great endearment and he says to it, he says, I have now owned you twice for I created you and now I have bought you back. And that's redemption. That's what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. He created us. He he made us. He he formed us. But sin separated us from this holy and righteous God. But God was not okay with us being separated from him. So he purchased us. He bought us back. He redeemed us. This word throughout the scriptures when talking about redemption, it's a a picture of slavery. If justification is a, a legal picture, Redemption is a commercial picture. It's a picture of of God uh, uh, buying something back. It's a picture of a slave being on a slave uh, block and being purchased, bought back, and then set free. That's what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. He has purchased us with Christ's blood, and he has bought us back or brought us from under what? From who? From under sin's tyranny from under being slaves to sin, as well as from being under his wrath. So when we think about Christ and salvation being exclusively through Christ, we can say that our salvation is in and through Christ because Christ is the one who purchased us. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He says, these words, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. The second word we see is the word propitiation. Propitiation. Here in verse, it's a big word, verse 24, but here's the concept of it. 
excuse me, verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. When we talk about propitiation, we're talking about a sacrifice of atonement. That God has redeemed us, but that he has also allowed his son's sacrifice to appease his wrath. That's what propitiation is. It's God appeasing his own wrath through his son's sacrifice. And this is at the heart of Christianity, but this is also a part of Christianity that people have a problem with. People have a problem with this doctrine that God will pour out his wrath on his own son. And they say, that's cosmic child abuse. That's foolishness that you will believe in a message that says the way that you are redeemed, the way that you're brought back is because God kills his own son. In fact, not just people who don't believe in Christianity, but apparently Christians struggle with it as well. Recently, a major denomination sought to change a contemporary classical hymn that we sung today, Christ Alone by the, by the Gettys, and they put in a ask for permission to change the lyrics. The lyrics that we sung earlier said, "Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Well, this denomination said that that's a, too crazy of a message, that God's wrath was satisfied in, in Jesus Christ. And it will be better if we reworded it and sung it a different way. So they sought to change the lyrics to, to on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. The wrath of God on Christ was too heavy of a message for them. But the problem is, is that's, that's the message of the scripture, that God has set his wrath on his own son to appease his own wrath towards sin. This is the prophetic message of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53. It says of the coming Messiah, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely you took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Jesus was stricken by his own father, afflicted by his own father, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Some translations say, yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. This message of propitiation, this message that Christ died for us and he took God's wrath on him is the message of the Bible. And if we turn our nose to this message, it's because we don't understand the depths of God, God's love. God's wrath is not a moral blemish. God's wrath is not something that we should hide ourselves from. God's wrath is a part of his moral perfection. It's a part of his love for us. We should be concerned if God was apathetic. We should be concerned if God created us and made us for his own pleasure and for our, our joy if this, this God did not care about us. 
Just like a, a spouse should be upset at their husband or wife if they go outside of their marriage. If you love them, you will be angry. You will be upset. In the same way, God loves us and he is angry. He is upset that we are finding joy or seeking to find happiness and joy outside of him, though there is no happiness or joy without him. So what does God do? He, he, he has this wrath. And how is this wrath appeased? Well, most religions say the way you appease this wrath is by working hard to please these gods. And each religion has a different system in which you can do, different things in which you can do to work your way up to God so that he is pleased with you. But here's the beautiful message of Christianity. The amazing good news of Christianity is that this God that we serve, that we love so much, is not only just, but he also is the justifier. That he allows his wrath to be poured out on his son. He allows his son's good works to be merited as ours. His son righteousness becomes our righteousness and the eternal son, Jesus Christ, takes upon God's wrath upon himself willingly out of love for you and for me. Charles Cranfield eloquently put it, God, because in his mercy he will to forgive sinful man, and by being truly merciful, will to forgive them righteously, that is, without in any way condoning their sin, purpose to direct against his own very self and the person of his son, the full weight of the righteous wrath which they deserved. Because God loved us, he poured out his own weight on his very self in his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Peter, I know you've betrayed me, but Peter, I'm going to become Peter for you. I'm going to take on your sin. Jesus says, Jamal, I, I know you fall short daily, by the second, by the minute. Salvation is not gonna be found in you working your way to please me and you saying a thousand Hail Marys and you... You, you finding your righteousness through your, your good work. Salvation is going to be found by you placing your faith and trust in my son who died in your place. And Jesus says, I came to do that for you. I came down a line, 42 generations. I allowed myself to be whipped with 39 whips with a catenine whip. Allow myself to be mocked and to be abused and to be spit on and misused by the very people that I created. And though I had all power and I am holding all things together by the power of my word, I willfully submitted myself to Pilate and gave my life. He said, no one takes my life. I give my life. And I gave my life to be the ransom for many because of my love. Salvation is only found in this one who's redeemed you. Salvation is, is only found in this one who is your propitiation. 
Salvation is only found in this God who demonstrated his justice. On the cross, God did not just achieve justice for you. On the cross, God demonstrated his righteousness. That's what the text says. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Paul says that when the fullness of time had come, God came to demonstrate his love and his justice. So Paul says in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem those who are under the law. In the fullness of time, God sent forth Jesus Christ to do what? To demonstrate demonstrate his righteousness, to demonstrate that he is both just, he is a holy God with a perfect standard, And he is the justifier. He is a God of love. And it is at the cross that these two come together with a a beautiful paradoxy that that God is both just, holy, righteous, and perfect, and he is so much more loving than we ever can imagine. So much so on the cross, he allowed his son, Jesus Christ, to absorb and to bear all of, his, all of his wrath for our past, present, and future sins. If God was just just, none of us would stand a chance. We all will be condemned to eternal separation from God because God, who is holy and perfect, cannot embrace imperfection. And if he embraced imperfection, if he just waved a a magic wand and said, okay, your sins are forgiven without someone having to pay for the penalty of sin, without death, then he would be unjust. So what does he do? Doesn't lay the burden on us because we can't do it. He allows the burden to be laid on his son. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what we believe as Christians. And that's why we worship Jesus. Because Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. I love what this wonderful German catechism has to say when answering the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Love this question. What is your only comfort in life and in death. And these words rang true in my ears yesterday at the funeral as we were singing gospel-centered song after gospel-centered song about Jesus. And as I looked around and I saw uh, Jason Spencer's uh, wife, Andrea, and some believers that's in their family singing Truths that to the world just seems, it seems foolish. Your son was just, your, your, your uh, son and your husband was just brutally uh, murdered, senselessly murdered. And yet you have a mother who believes in Jesus and a, a, a wife who believes in Jesus singing songs about God's sovereignty. Singing songs about how good God is. Singing songs about God's love. And to, to the person who's, who's looking who doesn't believe or who has never heard this message, that seems foolish. You're rejoicing in the sovereignty of God. If God is sovereign, then then God is the reason, ultimately, that, that Jason is no longer with us. But we can rest 
in the sovereignty of God because we know that not only is God sovereign, but that God is good. And then not only is God good, but that God is loving. And how can we rest in these truths? We can rest in these truths because we know what God has done. That God became a man. And that God lived a perfect life for us. And that he died the death that we deserve. And that he was put in a borrowed tomb. But on the third day, he got up with all power. And that God is in the process of bringing restoration. He is in the process of making all things new. That God is not a God who is sitting back and looking at our pain and looking at this this world without being active in it, but that he is active in it and that he is bringing all things to a place of restoration. And that this God who foreknew us is the God who glorifies us. He is the God who, who, who saves us. And even in the most tragic of tragedies, we can trust him And we can know that he is for us and not against us because he gave us his very best in Christ Jesus. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? What is in response to these things? Before he's talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation, the fact that God foreknew us. He predestined us. He justified us. He glorified us. This unbreakable chain of salvation. What then shall we say in response to these things, in response to the sovereignty of God? It's this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So Paul says, in light of his sovereignty, in light of his 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 giving Christ to us, what else will God not give us for salvation? If God has given us his very best in Christ Jesus, will he not give us peace? Will he not give us joy? Will he not see to complete that which he started in us? Would he not help us in our moments of loneliness? Will he not help us in our times of Confusion? Will he not help us in our times of darkness and grief? And the answer is yes, he will, and he will in Christ alone. Christ alone is not a message just about our salvation. Christ alone is a message about our sanctification. That he who begun a good work will bring it into completion. Just as we began in Christ, we must continue in Christ by faith. And we must learn to slow down and to marvel at Christ, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. That's why the the scriptures is constantly telling us to look, to behold, to set your minds on the things that are above and not the things that are on this earth. Get your eyes up, look up. Look to the one who died on Calvary for you and see that your life is now hidden in Christ Jesus. It's hidden in him. That's where peace comes from. That's where joy comes from. It doesn't come for us trying to fix our own life and make our own life work. It comes from us looking to Christ 
and realizing that salvation is found in him and him alone. And only he deserves to be praised. Only he redeemed us. Only he satisfied God's wrath. Only in him is God's love and justice perfectly demonstrated. So will you, Christian, in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your confusion, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your areas of unbelief, will you look to Christ and Christ alone? Will you lay aside the the idols of comfort? Will you lay aside the idols of, of seeking significance outside of Jesus? Will you fall to your face and on your knees and say, Jesus, you have owned me twice. You created me and you redeemed me. I need you. I'm yours. And every Sunday when we gather together, we take a meal together called communion. This meal helps us to set our minds on Christ by remembering what Christ has done for us. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. Christian, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, uh, whatever your conscience permits. And as we take this meal, we declare to ourselves, we declare to Satan, we declare to the world that salvation is by faith, by grace through faith and Christ alone. And we remind ourselves to put aside all of our striving for salvation and to receive the gift of God and to live out of renewal, to live out of our justification, to live out of our acceptance, not to earn it. If you're not a Christian here today, we're going to ask you not to partake in this meal. But I want to tell you, I I, I want to encourage you to take Christ. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the only way to find true fulfillment. <laughs> Jesus, said, Jesus said that he is the light of the world. If you are without Christ, you are living in darkness. Jesus said that he is the eternal water that should be drinking from. Anything else other than, than Jesus is a broken sister. It's a broken cup, and it will constantly lead you for searching for more. And today, I want to invite you to eternal life. I want you to turn and trust Jesus, to hear this good news, to cry out to him and say, Jesus, save me. I cannot save myself. No new age movement will save me. No other person, no other thought leader can bring salvation. Nothing you can do in your own strength can make you right with God. You cannot get yourself together. You have sinned against a holy, a perfect God, who demands perfection. He demands perfection from you. The only way to be in relationship with him is for you to be perfect. And that's exhausting, and it's impossible, and it's blasphemous to try. To try to earn your way to God. God says, no, I have given you a gift, and that gift is my son, Jesus Christ. And all you need to do is to repent and believe, is to commit to becoming his disciple, his learner, is running to him, admitting that you are a sinner and that salvation is found in Christ alone.
Those of you who are in the front half of the room, come to the front to take communion. Those of you who are in the back half of the room, go to the back. Gluten-free communion is to my left. Pray with me.